Welcome to the Oxpol blogcast, where we'll be sharing research, analysis and experiences from members of the University of Oxford's Department of Politics and International Relations. I'm your host, Anastasia Bektimirova, an MPhil student at the department and a podcast editor here at the Oxpol blog. This episode is part of the series Women in Politics – Perspectives from the Field and Academia. Over the next episodes, we are going to explore a feminist turn in political science and international relations research and try to better understand women's experiences in politics. Military forces tend to be stereotyped as a male turf. At the same time, most countries in the world permit the participation of women in the military in one form or another, either through conscription or on a voluntary basis. There are ongoing debates on the effects of integration of women into combat roles and units. Typically, concerns include the physical weakness of women in comparison to men and the potential harm the integration can bring to unit cohesion. On the other hand, supporters of women's integration believe that a wider pool of talent improves military effectiveness, while expanding women's citizenship rights and opening opportunities for women to serve their country. Today with me to discuss all that is Faye Curtis, a DPhil researcher at the Department of Politics and International Relations at the University of Oxford. Faye is studying women in ground-close combat roles, focusing specifically on the sociological processes involved in military training, and her research zooms into the UK case. In 2016, the then Prime Minister David Cameron announced that the ban on women in frontline close combat positions would be lifted. On this episode, Faye walks us through the academic and policy debates around this opportunity for women to serve in the full range of roles in the British Armed Forces. Later in this episode, you will get a glimpse into another dimension of military operation. By drawing on her professional experience of working for the UK diplomatic service at NATO, Faye will give us a sense of the culture of work at the organization. Faye, welcome to the podcast, it's so lovely to have you! Hello, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Faye, to begin, could you tell us what has led you to pursue doctoral research in this specific topic area? What observations or perhaps experiences have inspired you and informed your research interest? Why did you decide it was an interesting thing to look at? Well, at first I was drawn to the study of conflict during my undergraduate degree. I took a fantastic course on war and society uh, and how the two interact and it covered all sorts of issues from the interplay of military and civilian life to the changing role of warriors and the impact of technology and war in the nuclear age. But upon completing this module, I guess I'd covered all these big topics and I began to ask myself, perhaps without realizing really, because I wasn't familiar with Cynthia Enloe at this point, I began to ask myself what might be called the Enloe question, as it were. So the fundamental question being, where are the women in all of this? There are all these huge topics. Um, Here I was studying this rich and fascinating history of warfare, which in many ways felt like the study of history itself, in the sense that war has been so integral to the way we think about episodes of time and transitions of power in international politics, and yet vast majority of combatants in history have been men. 
seemed to appear to me at that time as the central characters in this otherwise epic story. So there was this question that was bubbling away in my mind. And it just so happened that around that time, also the UK government was considering lifting the ban on women in frontline close combat positions. And so there was all this debate over the potential consequences or benefits of transitioning to mixed sex fighting forces. And so when David Cameron eventually announced in 2016 that restrictions would indeed be lifted, the topic of women in ground close combat roles just seemed to present itself to me, really. I drafted a proposal at the time to study the effects of women joining, which had until then been almost exclusively a male profession. And so I was interested in the issues that were raised by this policy change, both from an intellectual perspective, as somebody who's interested in war and its causes, but also on a personal level as a woman. I then actually went off to work for the Foreign Office at NATO, which you mentioned. So it was actually some years before I returned to start the project I had envisioned. And so in that time, the army itself has also adjusted and prepared for the integration of female recruits, which has involved all sorts from the preparation of women's changing areas to female appropriate kit and equipment and so on. So now that progress has been made in those areas and women have started to actually pass through the rigorous training programs associated with close combat roles, it seems now, I hope at least, the perfect time to dig in and start finding out what exactly the effects are of women joining these historically male-dominated and famously masculinized units, which are often tasked with some of the most dangerous and consequential missions behind enemy lines. Speaking of the gaps that you have identified in the existing academic literature, how does your research project attempt to fill those? And how does it exploit the lifting of the ban on women in ground-close combat roles in the UK, which is quite a major policy change? Could you walk us through the approach you are taking in your DPhil research? Yeah, so a central premise underpinning my research is that warfare is and always has been an overwhelmingly male activity. Uh, Now, some listeners might immediately think, well, that's rubbish because we've got ample evidence by now that women also fight wars and women commit atrocities and women can, of course, be violent more generally in society. And that would be true. Critics would be right, really, to make that point. Of course, there are these exceptions. But what is of primary interest in my research is the pattern of gendered wartime roles rather than the exception. And many scholars have shown who have worked on this issue before me that there really have been very few exceptions to what is actually a quite general rule. So we know, based on the existing historical and anthropological record, that individual women in the past have disguised themselves as men to join the ranks of the combat arms, and women have long served as partisans in paramilitary, terrorists and insurgent groups and so on. And women have also served, of course, in combat support roles for state militaries for many years now. But as Margaret Macmillan explains in her book on the history of war, many of these exceptional cases, including the legend of the Amazons, Joan of Arc and so on, some of these fearsome female warriors who've long been depicted in mythology, folklore, general narratives of national imagination. These are ultimately exceptional cases and we know them precisely because they are rare. And the reality of this uh, historical pattern is that throughout time and across cultures, it has almost always been men doing the fighting as well as the killing and the dying in combat. 
And so this empirical association between men and war extends to a pattern that is evident clearly in society more broadly. We know that men make up around 90% of homicide offenders globally and from small scale hunter-gatherer societies to large scale nation states, the picture looks much the same with men overwhelmingly more likely to both kill and be killed in peacetime and in war. So having made that case, convincingly I hope, It's unsurprising, really, that much of the existing literature that I've come across so far in my research on what actually motivates soldiers in war draws very heavily on this empirical truth. So you have on the one side evolutionary biologists who maintain that it is mostly men who fight because adapted male traits incline them to seek status and reproductively advantageous rewards through their participation in warfare. And for this reason, evolutionary scholars have long been engaged in a pretty ferocious debate with scholars in sociology, anthropology and feminist theory who tend to emphasize social learning mechanisms um, instead. They emphasize social learning or conditioning, if you like, over biological mechanisms. So they point to the construction of a universal male warrior archetype. And the effect of male bonding, which might otherwise be known as the quite familiar band of brothers idea, in order to explain really why gendered war roles have been so historically and cross-culturally consistent. And there's another strand of thought found in contemporary work, which does at the same time, however, downplay this hypothesized link between manhood and war. So the combat professional explanation, as I call it, which has been advanced by Dave Grossman, Anthony King and others, makes a quite simplistic yet profound argument that soldiers fight because they are trained to. So it's a pretty obvious idea, but instead of emphasising maleness and masculinity, scholars in this camp instead stress the importance of institutional socialisation and ritual And so the reason this line of thought has been so interesting to my work and pretty much underpins my entire project is that it implies that basically anyone can be turned into an effective warrior with the right training. And personally, I'm still in the process of working out which point of view I find most convincing and which cases to focus on, especially how best to approach the data collection and so on. But in recent years, we have seen more than 20 states around the world lift restrictions on women serving in frontline combat regiments. We know that women are serving on the front lines in Ukraine and women have also participated in non-state combat forces, such as the Kurdish female fighters who famously took on the Islamic State. So wherever you look, it seems like an opportune moment to put these existing theories on why soldiers fight the test. And that's pretty much what my project is about. Thank you, Faye. That sounds fascinating. Faye, as you have just illustrated, women are fighting in wars, including in frontline combat regiments. And yet the way they are perceived tends to differ from the way men militants are. To further dive into the international relations scholarship, men in conflict are often seen as the warriors and women as the beautiful souls. One notion is associated with masculinity and another one with femininity. And this opposing concept serves to recreate and secure women's social position as non-combatants and men's identity as warriors. Given the focus of your research, I assume that your work puts this idea that militarism and femininity are in opposition to a test. 
Could you perhaps demystify these two archetypes of warriors and beautiful souls for us a little? And can they be complementary at all? It's a great question, which really gets to the heart of the tensions that are already present in so much of the literature. So Jean Elstein, who worked on this just warrior and beautiful soul concepts that you mentioned, would probably say that, yes, militarism and femininity are in opposition, but necessarily so in the sense that one enables the other to exist. In fact, feminist scholars often argue that women themselves play a role in the social construction of these wartime gender roles. And some even go as far as to say that the gender order itself underpins the wider war system. So just as the suffragettes, Emmeline and Christabel Pankhurst famously waved white feathers in the face of eligible men who refused to fight during the First World War. And just as Virginia Woolf, for example, says a famous quote, which says, women have served all these centuries as looking glasses, possessing the magic and delicious power of reflecting the figure of man at twice its natural size. The central idea is that the notion of the brave male warrior derives its power from the female observer or the female other, to use Simone de Beauvoir's framing. And crucially, anti-militarist feminists who would generally be associated with this view maintain that one way to rid ourselves of the scourge of war really is to unpick or deconstruct the gender dynamics prevalent in society. So precisely this dichotomous, just warrior, beautiful soul situation that you've described. On the other hand, however, coming at the topic from a completely different perspective, there are liberal feminists who contend that all this talk about masculinity and femininity is a bit of a distraction, really. Instead, they tend to perceive the gendered pattern of warfare, which I've previously spoken about, the factual, if you like, the empirical pattern whereby men are the overwhelming majority of soldiers around the world. Well, they would say that actually this is just representative of a quite discriminatory situation and argue that men and women, in essence, are more or less the same. And so the logical conclusion of their perspective is that women will fight just like men if only they're given the chance to. And so a lot of this dichotomous thinking is kind of redundant. And so, as you can imagine, my research really gets to the heart of this huge debate in feminist theory too, because with these policy changes, we should ultimately be able to see whether one side is correct or not. If women fight just like men, we should see exactly that start to happen now that restrictions have been lifted. Now, again, I'm not actually sure where I fall on this debate yet. I have sympathy for any feminist view which seeks to push back on theories that appear to draw on natural difference arguments, because the idea that men and women are inherently different has, of course, been used to oppress women in the past, and many such claims have turned out to be completely bogus. So I get why feminists argue this. Yet at the same time, I do have a hunch that the pattern of gendered warfare is too widespread and deeply rooted to be completely social in nature. And so perhaps we are missing something vital in our understanding of war and peace if we wed ourselves too closely to the liberal feminist view. But as I said, I still don't know. This is a hunch at the moment, and it's something that ultimately I hope to explore through uh, the new empirical terrain presented by these policy changes. And in my research, I hope that I can shed some much needed light on this topic and eventually say with some confidence which side I think is correct in the end. On this note, Faye, could you give us a sense of the potential risks associated with sending men and women both in combatant roles into war together? 
Well, skeptics of women's integration have made all sorts of arguments, from the fear that a woman's presence will disrupt male bonding, to the idea that men might seek to protect female colleagues at the expense of overall mission objectives, or the idea that women will lack not just the physical ability, but the psychological will to close with and kill the enemy at the crucial opportune moment. And there's also the classic fear that sexual relationships will form between male and female personnel, and this will complicate group dynamics, perhaps leading to jealousy and resentment and an overall threat to group cohesion, which is obviously a disaster for any fighting force. So there are huge concerns. These concerns have long been debated, but there are others who argue actually that women might have a positive effect on the overall masculinized and exclusive warrior culture that has, some say, led to groups of soldiers engaging in non-professional behavior and even going as far as committing war crimes and sexual violence in conflict zones. So as with the competing academic theories that I've outlined previously on this matter, we'll have to wait and see really whether the skeptics or uh, the proponents are right and ultimately find out what it is that the data suggests. But Faye, what does the existing evidence suggest in that respect? How justified are those risks? Well, the existing evidence suggests there is little for military leaders to worry about, really. In the case of the USSR, which famously deployed women in battle during the Second World War, force capability was maintained and arguably even enhanced by the presence of women. Historical records depict the Dahomey Amazon warriors as ferocious and highly capable. And numerous studies have also found that women's inclusion has a negligible or overall positive impact, in fact, on the performance of non-state fighting forces, which have historically been much more open to female participation than state forces have. The Israeli case is often cited, but the IDF doesn't actually deploy women in all combat positions despite high levels of female integration generally. So that's less useful as a comparative case, actually, than it seems at first. Canada, on the other hand, has deployed women in Afghanistan and Iraq and has actually lost female soldiers in those wars. So there is precedent for women's involvement in contemporary state conflicts. And in fact, it should be said that women have long served on the front lines of modern state wars, just not in combatant capacity. So many women have served as medical and support personnel, which in urban warfare environments has exposed them to the same level of danger as male soldiers, but without allowing them any ability to fight back. So while the evidence is sparse and still somewhat inconclusive, it does appear to suggest that the effect of women's integration will be minimal if there is any effect at all. And this is further supported by evidence that LGBT soldiers and ethnic and racial minority soldiers have been smoothly integrated into these hypermasculine and once socially homogenous units without any corresponding loss in group cohesion having occurred. Because, of course, similar arguments about the dangers of integrating those groups were also used in the not-too-distant past and were proved to also be based on some quite unsubstantiated concerns. Faye, your research clearly tackles the questions that are novel and of high relevance to ongoing academic and also policy debates over the effects of women's integration into the previously all-male units. And just to sum up, in what ways do you yourself envision your research contributing to scholarship and beyond? Well, as I hope I've conveyed in my last few answers, there are a lot of existing ideas that pertain to my question. And these ideas derive from all corners of the academy, many of which talk past each other and are generally perceived as being quite ideologically opposed. 
And so despite ultimately grappling with the same sorts of issues and questions, they are rarely seen to, to interact or to change their perspectives. It started to become a bit of a polarized debate that is also largely hypothetical in many ways, because that empirical gendered pattern has been so consistent until now, pretty much. And so I think all of these questions and issues of both theoretical and real life importance, because if those who say male and female combatants are similarly motivated and that, you know, there's no real difference between uh, men and women when it comes to warfare, if they are right, for example, then that gives us cause to rethink possibly many of our foundational assumptions about the necessary causes and nature of war, which have long posited from the evolutionary perspective or the social constructionist perspective, a causal or constitutive, if you like, link between manhood and war fighting. But if on the other hand, critics of women's integration are right, and actually mixed sex forces do run into problems, then that will quickly become a very serious potential even life or death issue with strategic ramifications. And so I know everyone thinks their research is important, but I really do think the implications of my project are enormous. And so I only hope that I can do it some justice. You certainly do, Faye. And also, taking a zoom out perspective, I think that what you have mentioned speaks to somewhat of a barrier to greater intellectual progress in social sciences more broadly. Because very often similar debates exist in silos, captured within specific fields and subfields of study instead of entering into a dialogue with each other. So understanding where and when to build those cross-disciplinary bridges is really important indeed. And now moving on from the academic part of our conversation, I know that before your doctoral studies at Oxford, you worked for the UK diplomatic service at NATO. I'd like to spend some time talking about your experience outside of academia and how it relates to your research today. So to begin, what has led you to join the UK diplomatic service at NATO in the first place? I've always been fascinated by international politics and the world of diplomacy. So when the opportunity arose to represent my country and join the UK delegation at NATO headquarters in Brussels, I jumped at that chance. It turned out to be a fantastic experience and a great learning curve. Could you give us a glimpse of your role there? What were some of the topics that you were working on and what were some of the highlights? Well, I started off in a very junior position, but by the time I left to start my doctorate, I was serving as the UK desk officer for Afghanistan. We all saw the fall of Kabul play out in the news. So looking back, it feels somewhat obtuse to try and draw on highlights and lessons learned from that time. But what I will say is that the collective effort put into making NATO's work in Afghanistan a success by staff in the Brussels HQ, but more importantly, by the many Afghans working with NATO forces on the ground to secure a brighter future for their fellow citizens was humbling and inspiring and completely heroic, notwithstanding the eventual outcome. Faye, could you give us a sense of the culture of work at NATO? For instance, one would assume that it is quite a male-dominated organization. Have you observed any gendered dynamics there? I'd have to say no. In fact, what was most striking at NATO HQ was the sheer diversity of colleagues, which went far beyond gender. 
Undoubtedly, NATO, like any military organization, is still a heavily gendered place in terms of female representation, as men far outnumber women staff members, uh, particularly on the military side. But in terms of day-to-day activity, it was the national differences that I noticed the most. So from the outside, I think NATO appears and is often talked about as a bit of a monolith. And I guess for its own self-image, it is important that the organization is perceived as a unified bloc. But I think it is also important that the public are aware, if only just to rebut the the conspiracy nuts out there, that NATO is not just a US outpost, but a consensus-based organization that is comprised of now 30 and hopefully soon to be 32 countries with highly intertwined histories and cultures, but also highly varied national characteristics, diplomatic styles and political priorities. So it was a fascinating place to work from that perspective, as together we would strive to find agreement despite those differences. And so gender dynamics, in my view anyway, was always subordinate to the national quirks and identities that really and truly shaped daily life in the organisation. Yeah, that's an interesting observation indeed, Faye. And What place do gender issues have in the work of the organization and on NATO's agenda more broadly? I certainly do think that women within the organization from all countries on both the military and the civilian side have played an important role in getting gender issues high on the agenda over recent years. NATO has pushed through numerous policies in support of the UN's Women, Peace and Security Agenda, and it has devised its own internal policy on combating sexual exploitation and abuse as well. So that's really important. And while there is still a long way to go, progress on those issues has certainly been made. In addition, I think it's important to note that the classic security and defence domains with which NATO and the military are more commonly associated are also at their core women's issues, because as we have seen with Afghanistan and with NATO's support to Ukraine in recent months, defense of national sovereignty, democratic freedom and fundamental rights are crucial to women's prosperity and some semblance of state security is necessary for us all to thrive. And how has your lived experience of working at NATO informed your difficult research? Getting to work with military professionals on a daily basis was highly valuable. It gave me a real insight into their roles and responsibilities, and perhaps most importantly of all, it gave me a head start in understanding all the different and often obscure ranks and titles and what they signify, because that truly is a lot to get your head around at first, and I'm not sure I'll ever completely get it right. So that was very helpful. But I think the biggest influence on me has been in my general approach to international relations, actually. I entered the organization with the hedonism of a young graduate committed to liberal internationalism. While I do still subscribe to that position as something to strive towards as an overall objective, I'm now far more, I guess you could say, sober and clear-eyed about the restraints of power in international politics. And so in that respect, I would say I'm much more of a realist than maybe I was when I joined. And hopefully that will, um, in its own way, make me a better and more informed scholar as well. Okay, and finally, as many students are enrolled in political science and international relations programs, aspire to pursue careers at international organizations such as NATO, what advice would you give to anyone wishing to gain similar experience? 
I'm not sure I would have much advice on how to actually get in. I think I got very lucky. But once through the door, what I would say is do let the critical thinking skills developed during your academic career inform your actions and your decision making. Sure. But try not to hold overly cynical expectations. I think researchers necessarily take a strong line on issues in order to make a contribution to the literature and to move debates forward. But the reality for staff working on the same sorts of issues within international organisations is that they are messy and complex and very hard to resolve, even with the best will in the world. Often international politics involves only bad and even worse options. So it's best to focus your energy on pragmatic and innovative solutions, as real life will never completely fit the theory. And most of your colleagues will just be doing the best they can with what they've got to go on. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much for sharing your perspective on this. Faye, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for joining us on the Oxpol podcast and we wish you best of luck with your research. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Oxpol blogcast. Be sure to keep your eyes on the Oxpol blog at blog.politics.ox.ac.uk to keep updated on the latest pieces and podcasts from the blog.